Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Since I've sat here in the chamber, I've seen all sorts of allegations made in the floor of parliament, which are pretty terrible. So having strong institutions uh, contingent upon having mechanisms to examine an allegation so that it could be put to bed. I mean, that would free us. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy. And with me this week is the delightful Helen Haynes, Member for Indi. Helen, welcome. Thanks so much, Catherine, and hello to all your potties. So Helen uh, is in the pod cave this week uh, because there's there's a lot of interesting stuff afoot happening in the background about uh, integrity commissions and transparency in politics and accountability in politics, all of which has sort of bubbled to the surface over the course of the week. But if you guys have been following the news closely, you'll know that the dominant story really has been climate change and the Morrison government's uh, positioning ahead of the Glasgow Climate Conference. So I thought in order to just elevate the integrity issues a little uh, because it's it's a very noisy environment uh, that uh, I would bring Helen in and we'd have a conversation about it because if you're a regular listener, you will know Helen is a crusader on this uh, subject because we've discussed it at length before. But anyway, we're catching up because a few things are afoot. So let's start. Uh, now, we are, we're recording on Thursday. Uh, you met Scott Morrison Yesterday, is that correct? I think it was only yesterday. Time, time is liquid in this place. No, no, exactly. <laughs> no it was. Uh, it was yesterday. Yes, that's yeah. why I paused slightly because yeah. I just wasn't entirely sure. Anyway, okay, you met the prime minister. Let's let's tell people what that was about. Well, I meet with the prime minister. Uh, regularly, actually, uh, so every couple of months, and uh, I sit down with him and talk to him about the kind of things that are concerning me um, on a local level in my electorate, more broadly for the nation, and uh, what my agenda is in terms of trying to fix those things. So, one of the key subjects that I've uh, spoken to the Prime Minister about since I came to Parliament was around uh, the Federal Integrity Commission, and of course, our starting point was that the government had promised. Uh, to introduce one. And uh, we're now at the point, of course, where that hasn't happened and where I've introduced my own legislation a year ago tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, so I frequently talk to the Prime Minister about that. So yesterday when I met with him, uh, Senator Patrick was uh, about to introduce my bill uh, into the Senate Mm -hmm. under his name. So I was flagging that with the PM to say, you know, I'm serious about this, PM, and um, I'm working with as many people 
who I can and uh, there are senators who are very interested in pushing through uh, with the bill of mine that's, of course, being identified by the Centre for Public Integrity as best practice and so mm-hmm. Senator Patrick's about to do that today, so just letting you know if you don't already. Of course, he did know already. And uh, then also indicating to him that I would be reintroducing my bill into the House of Representatives next week on Monday mm-hmm. and asking him, could he have a word to the Leader of the House and instruct the Leader of the House to... Bring on the bill. Bring on the bill. Mm-hmm. And what happened next? Well, um, <laughs> I, you know, I think the Prime Minister appreciates that I'm candid with him about my plans. And again, I do that because I'm not interested in just performing a stunt. I am actually genuinely interested in asking the government to cooperate with me on this. Mm-hmm. So the Prime Minister said, no, that's that's not going to happen, Helen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Uh, okay, I accepted that. So my next Minute next question was, uh, or not question, my statement the next was I'll be asking Mr Dutton if he'll at least open up a speaker's list on that suspension of standing orders so folks in the House of Representatives who might like to say something mm, have can. the opportunity to do so. So mm. that's what I'll be doing. Um, I'm hoping Mr Dutton will say yes to that. I think he will on Monday and uh, I shall proceed. That will fail, uh, but that won't deter me from continuing to pursue this. And a little bit of context around that uh, is we've seen over the last uh, couple of weeks in particular, some Liberals, some members of the government uh, coming forward with critiques of the government's own proposal on an integrity commission, you know, doesn't quite go far enough, Mm. Uh, you know, with their, also the Attorney General has flagged some possible adjustments to the government's bill. Would you think that in terms of that speaker's list and bringing on the bill in the House next week that any Liberals might use that reintroduction as an opportunity to make some points? Or I know that's not what it's about. I I know, (laughs) I know, Helen, you just want to get an integrity question. I have to understand that. Uh, But... Everybody needs to play three-dimensional chess in this building. Yeah, they do. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. And you will have thought about this. So yeah. uh, what do you think about that? Well, I am um, I mean, firstly, on Monday there was uh, a motion debate in the Federation Chamber, which was a motion brought by um, Andrew Wilkie, mm-hmm. one of my crossbench colleagues, and it was around the need for a Federal Integrity Commission. And uh, some of the uh, Liberal Party backbenchers who've been uh, speaking in the media about their desires for a, a much more robust version of the government bill than than what's currently before us uh, spoke to that motion. Mm-hmm. So um, Dave Sharma and Katie Allen and um, Bridget Archer all, all spoke and uh, there was indications in that debate that the they had some uh, areas that they think the government kick framework, because it's still not legislation, of course, not even draft legislation, yes. needed improvement. So uh, And that was around some of the very fundamental features, Catherine, like public hearings, uh, like... Uh, um, the capacity to be retrospective. Uh, there was, you know, there's several several elements, as you and I well yes. know. Yes. Um, I followed up then, actually, um, with uh, with Dave Sharma and, and with Katie Allen to talk more about what they had to say in the chamber, mm-hmm. and um, and with Bridget Archer too. And uh, I've had regular conversations with with others in the house. You know, um, people you would be well aware of, uh, people like Lou O'Brien, mm-hmm. people like Celia Hammond. Uh, so there's many many parliamentarians who have views on. This and uh, again, that opportunity to to open a short speakers list on a suspension of standing orders, while it won't uh, materially change what happens to the bill 
on Monday, again, just gets these views out into the public domain more formally in, in the chamber. I think it's really important. It's a small step, but each step is a is a step. No, exactly. And mm. and nothing happens here without a series of small steps. It's uh, you know, it's it's part of it's part of building the case and I'm certain that backbenchers expressing views about a model for an integrity commission would focus minds in the cabinet and certainly in the prime ministerial suite. <laughs> well, it's about... interesting. I, I put that to Mr Morrison and um, he, of course, uh, said, as, as the prime minister would, that there's opportunities for those members of parliament to to air those views uh, in the party room. And indeed, I imagine they will. And, that, and that's great. But it's also very important to pin your colours to the mast uh, in the public domain through the media, which has already happened. But more importantly than that, sometimes it's pretty easy to say, something to to uh, to the media it's mm. another thing indeed uh, to show show what you really mean in in the House of Representatives and of course you know the ultimate is always how serious are you uh, when it comes to a vote mm, exactly and um, do you think that I mean obviously I, I know you you would prefer your own model and as you say your um, your model has had significant respected third party endorsement. Uh, do you think, though, that the government can adjust its own proposal to, well, not create a perfect model that would be, given given the amount of time it's taken to get to here, you sadly would have to question the bona fides of, you know, given how long it's taken, but is there a model that the government could bring forward that is less than yours but greater than theirs that you and some of your other crossbench colleagues who are very attuned to this issue could support? Is there any universe where that happens? I'd like to think there was a universe where that happened, uh, but it would take serious endeavour from the government and they would have to move on from what we heard uh, question time today that, you know, that they've undertaken considerable consultation and continuing to do so. Mm. Uh, and terms like refinement, um, refinement indicates there's a small amount of fine-tuning. Yes. Um, we're way, way outside of fine-tuning. Um, the, the most fundamental principle of one set of rules for all is, I think, uh, one that we absolutely must have. We simply can't uh, can't accept a model that has a different set of rules for the Australian Federal Police and other agencies to that which uh, MPs and and senior bureaucrats uh, are held to. That that would be completely unacceptable. I think to to many members of Parliament, actually, not only myself. Uh, mm. So there's some fundamental principles that need to be there. But look. To be absolutely frank, I think that the government's uh, kick model is completely unamendable. I truly do. I, I do think that uh, Senator Cash and Senator Stoker, uh, and I hope they're doing this, um, have got out a, a new sheet of paper uh, and are really listening to the consultation because, um, you know, that framework as it stands is 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 just woefully inadequate. Now, it doesn't have to be a Helen Haynes bill. Of course it doesn't. Mm. And, and you've heard me say it before and I've said it in the floor of Parliament. I, I would be happy... It's a gift. It's a gift to the nation. Take it um, and work with that. But I think like any decent piece of legislation, it needs to be built on some fundamental principles. Mm. And so, and obviously very hard to bridge that gap. What about too, because um, obviously 
uh, we'll get to climate a little bit later in the conversation. They're related, though, Catherine, aren't they? Are they you know, well, I mean, they absolutely are. I, I was having a conversation uh, with some constituents earlier about refugee policy, and they said, "Helen, we we know that the work you're doing on integrity is related to refugee policy. Mm. We mm. know it's related to climate. We know that's why you do it. It's related to all policy. It, yeah, it really is, yeah. isn't it? No, of course. Yeah, it's a of bedrock. Course. Of course, absolutely, it is. Mm. The point um, of me going there was not to make that good point. It was to surface, uh, th- there's been a lot of organisation or, or a pickup in organisation among the independence movements, um, Voices and Climate 200 and other groups, right, who are marshalling in Liberal uh, territory, basically, to try and try and win seats. <laughs> and if you can't make a, if you can't win a seat, make at least make a point, right? Mm. Uh, obviously, a lot of the focus on, on that has been climate and deficiencies in the government's climate policy. Uh, the integrity issue is certainly there, and it's 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 to the fore. But can you see a situation where uh, some liberals would be vulnerable from independence on the integrity issue as much as on the climate issue? Do you see what I mean? Yes. Um, look, it, it is extraordinary that there are voices movements mustering around the nation. Uh, well, maybe it's not. Um, mm. No, it's not really, but, no. it's, but it's very interesting. It's so fascinating mm. and it's fascinating to me uh, as the member for Indi where this began and those voices movements are all independent of, of Indi, that's for sure. So I, I watch with, with fascination about the way they're going about this and, uh, in fact, interestingly, I'm, I, I, I got on the phone to one of them in, uh, in one of the electorates recently and said, look, it's no business of mine, but you might want to just not be so negative about the sitting member and, you know, talk positively about what good looks like. Yes. You know, just flip it around because that's certainly what worked for us in Indi was not to focus on, on what you don't like but to focus on what you what you would mm. like to see. Mm. And I think, um, again, it's no surprise to me that climate and integrity are the two top issues that these voices movements are finding when they do their kitchen table conversations. Mm. It resonates right around the nation and it resonates because they affect every single person. Mm. Something like climate, particularly in regional seats, um, you know, we're, we're right there on the line of, of, of climate change, you know, we, we are the ones out there. Um, we're the CFA, you know. Yes. You know, we're, yes. the, we're, the, yes. we're the RFS, um, we're, the, we're the farmers in a drought, we're the, you know, we're the local towns where the, the floods, well, that happens in the cities too, but, you know, it, we are there uh, where we're seeing up close and personal the impacts of a changing climate. Mm. And, you know, even some of the most um, conservative cockies around, Tell me, of course, they've been, you know, they monitor the rainfall. They've been checking their crops for the last, you know, how many decades? They know things are different. Of course mm. they do. Mm. And they're adjusting for it. The good farmers are. And, and that's why that's why you're seeing the Meat and Livestock Association with a carbon neutral target of 2030. It's why they're planting legumes that are fixing nitrate to the soil and reducing methane in, in, uh, in the guts of, of cattle. It's why the National Farmers Federation have, have had this target of zero net carbon by 2050 for so long because they know. Yeah. So, you know, I think, again, constituents understand that too and they're perplexed why their sitting representative is not expressing the view of of the electorate. And and it's gone from, I think, like there's been a penny drop moment where they hear their local MPs speaking on one level about 
strong support for climate action and then they see them vote differently yes. in the House. And I think that's that's something we're hearing a lot. Have a, have a look at how, how your MP actually votes. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting element of the campaign because yeah. um, you do see that sort of getting traction in some of the social mm. media conversations around politics. Mm. I mean, obviously, it's sort of at one level their response to that would be, well, hang on. Helen, this isn't America. We don't have perfect liberty to vote however we want on any, you know, yeah. any, any issue, right? That would be the rebuttal point. Mm. But then your point is that you should not be able to get away with mouthing nice platitudes. Um, you know, it sounds a bit rude, but sorry, let's just be direct. You shouldn't be able to get away with mouthing platitudes while not following through with action, right? Yeah, so. I, look, I think so, and I absolutely take your point. This isn't this isn't the United States, but uh, likewise, if uh, if your representative is shackled to a to a party and a view, then it's no surprise to me that many electorates are saying, "Well, well, maybe we don't want someone who's shackled to a party. Maybe we do want someone who can." can vote according to their conscience or uh, or the conscience of the people, more importantly, yes, um, yes, because yes. it's never really about, I mean, it's only occasionally that it's about your particular view. It's about how you interpret the view of your electorate. That's, of course, what we're here to do. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, I think the other thing that's important to say about the Voices movement is that it's actually encouraging people to listen up, you know, to engage to not just leave it till election day before you think, oh, heck, who will I vote for? I will status quo mm. or, you know, I'm going to make a protest vote to actually say, no, maybe maybe you really would benefit by interrogating the candidates a little more and to do it in a respectful way, to do it in a way that's uh, that's not throwing mud at individuals, that's actually asking them about how they would behave in the parliament. Mm. Yeah, So I think that part of it is is really terrific. Mm. I think it, it, it genuinely is really good that that's happening. And this week also we've seen a sort of procedural snafu uh, in the parliament, (laughs) Uh, which is sort of integrity adjacent. It it relates to pecuniary interests and the registration of pecuniary Mm. interests. If uh, you guys missed it this week, there was uh, an effort by Labor to refer uh, Christian Porter's use of a blind trust that was used to pay uh, his or some of his legal fees in a discontinued defamation matter. There was a view uh, or an attempt to refer that to the Privileges Committee, which is the sort of, um, well, it's kind of like the self-regulation committee yeah. of the parliament, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's that's a good description. It's sort of uh, the, these guys sort of look at look at those issues, look at standards, look at accountability, look at how the whole show is travelling. Uh, now, the government uh, used its numbers to block Labor's referral, even though the speaker had given it precedence. Uh, the Peter Dutton then produced some correspondence that he had sent to the chair of the Privileges Committee with a request to clarify the use of various cloud crowdfunding arrangements, et cetera. What did you think of all that, Helen? Well, look, firstly, I would say that this began really on Monday when the leader of opposition business, Tony Burke, stood up and spoke to the House and to the Speaker and, and asked the Speaker to consider this. Yes. And um, so I was listening carefully then, um, I have an enormous respect for our speaker, and I have so much to learn as a as a first term parliamentarian. So I was listening carefully. He said, "I, I will take this away and consider it carefully and return to the parliament," which is what he did mm. last night. Yep. 
and uh, he said, uh, and uh, he said there was a prima facie case for this to proceed as a referral. So um, I wasn't in the chamber at that moment, but I was listening up in my room, and I thought, okay, well that's good, that's done, that's going to happen. And mm. next thing, uh, <laughs> next thing it was a reversal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yes. that was that was quite extraordinary, actually, mm. for the government to take an opposing view to its own speaker. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and then then the rest you know, all broke out, of course. Uh, so um, I, I'm actually deeply concerned by that. Mm. I really am. And uh, I think there's plenty of other people on both sides of the House who uh, were deeply concerned by that. Do you think, because the government says in its defence, Peter Dutton's instructions to the um, or reference, I think is probably the better parlance, to the, to the Privileges Committee, you know, was designed to take on board that particular blind trust as well as other examples, right? This mm. is what the government's saying today. Mm. So we didn't actually block Christian Porter, no, 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 even though we stood up in the parliament and blocked <laughs> blocked, the, blocked, the referral. No, no, we, we, we absolutely want all of that clarified. Do you buy that? No. I, I'm with the speaker. <laughs> yes, actually. It's sort of strange though, isn't it, why, why you'd... It's sort of unfathomable to me. That, that that you would sort of, you know, if you, if you wanted the if you wanted the broad ranging look and clarification, and and you wanted to give the committee scope to make findings, why we would? <laughs> so, I mean, they can do that. Yes, like, they could do that. Of course, yeah, no, they could. of course, yeah. and that's that's something that perhaps not all listeners will understand. That yeah. the privileges committee is its own beast yes. and could do whatever. In fact, it feels it yeah. should do. And maybe it should do that too. You know, I, th- I think there's, uh, of course, the issue of political donations more broadly is uh, really problematic in this place. Yes. And I think it does warrant much more scrutiny. Of course it does. In fact, I think we should have significant changes to the way political donations occur in the federal parliament. Mm, Far more aligned with what happens in the states and what happens in other nations. Absolutely. But I think when we have uh, a situation such as what we had last night, where the Speaker of the House has given consideration to this, that this wasn't a snap decision from Tony Smith. No, no. And then the the Privileges Committee could go away and do their work. So uh, I think it's, it's again, tragic for transparency and tragic for our democracy that... um, this became so highly politicised. It didn't need to be so. Yeah, and it's sort of strange to do it too because, you know, from every from every bit of feedback you've ever given me and through me watching the, the care and focus you've brought to these issues since your arrival here suggests to me strongly that these are cut-through issues in communities, that communities basically see these issues as proxies for whether or not the institutions function properly and, and correctly so. So it's sort of, I don't know, I just find it a perpetual head-scratcher that yeah. um, that you would sort of line up on the wrong side of those debates as as we've seen happen. Can, can <laughs> What's your theory about this? Well, <laughs> look, you know, I, I'm I'm as perplexed as you are because no no parliamentarian enjoys um, speculation that they may be corrupt. Good grief! I mean, that's that's an extraordinarily serious allegation, mm. and and I seriously don't think that there's too many people who would fall into that category. Um, And and I think that having strong institutions uh, contingent upon having mechanisms to examine an allegation so that it could be put to bed. Mm. Um, I mean, that would free us 
I, you know, since I've sat here in the chamber, I've seen all sorts of allegations made in the floor of parliament, which are pretty terrible. So, uh, you know, I just think we would eliminate a lot of that mm. if there was uh, the right mechanism by which to examine it. And again, I'm always perplexed when I hear MPs uh, alarmed at the thought that an independent commissioner um, would be the person charged with having a look at something and determining, A, if it's even worth investigating. Mm. And let's face it, there'd be a lot of things that get said in the chamber that would never be worth investigating. No, of course. Yeah. Um, it's why, again, any any integrity commission needs to have uh, strong safeguards, such as the legal definition of a vexatious or frivolous referral. Mm. Um, but, but something like the Privileges Committee, you know, that's it's a time-honoured way of looking at a question such as what's been um, asked of the member for Pierce, and mm. I think it's, I think it was tragic last night what happened. I was deeply, deeply concerned by it. Mm. And you said you were in your room at mm. that point, mm. um, so uh, obviously these debates come on and off. Everybody follows the play. Everybody, if you're mm. not in the chamber, you're watching the chamber. Mm. But how are the pairing arrangements working? Uh, oh, on gosh, the... <laughs> I'm glad you asked me that. Um, so, Catherine, as your listeners probably know, like not all parliamentarians are present in uh, in Parliament House at the moment uh, for, for very good reasons. There's borders closed, there's issues with people coming and then being subjected to long periods of quarantine, all sorts of things going on. So uh, in order to manage that, again, uh, there's a time-honoured tradition in this place whereby the major parties, if uh, if someone's unable to attend the parliament, they get what's called a pair mm-hmm. so that the um, voting is reflected in a, in a fair way to indicate what in fact is the numbers in the House, and that's been going on with uh, with the Coalition and the Labor Party in the House of Representatives. Uh, but no such pairing is there for the crossbench, uh, unlike the Senate, where there is actually an opportunity for crossbenchers who don't have a, an obvious reciprocal yes. on the other side to, to actually cast their vote. Um, so members of the crossbench in the House of Representatives, all of us, um, Mr Catter, Mr Kelly, um, Rebecca Sharkey, Zali Stegall, Adam Bant, Andrew Wilkie and myself wrote to Mr Dutton and said, hey, we're not happy that some of us are missing mm. and there's uh, votes taking place in the House which would have a different outcome, in fact, if all the crossbenchers were here, we believe, and there needs to be a a process for us, you're leaving us out right now, um, the numbers in the House, if everyone attended, would be 75 on the coalition, 75 crossbench and the, and the opposition with the Speaker having the casting vote. Yes. Now, last night was the classic example. I, I know because um, I've asked them if we had have had the crossbench represented we would have had a different outcome. Mm. We would have had the member for Pierce referred to the Privileges Committee on the recommendation of the Speaker. So this makes a material difference. And I think, you know, if you're not looking, you don't see, but the will of the people is truly not being represented at the moment while the crossbench doesn't have the capacity to be paired in some way or to indeed to cast their vote. And what explanation has the government given you for, because you, you, you're right, I'm, full, I'm aware of the pairing arrangements that exist in the Senate, why is there a different set of rules in the House? Yeah, a really great question and um, one uh, when I received the letter from, from uh, Mr Dutton to say, um, and, and, and he used the term impractical, mm. I, I said to him, I had a conversation with him as we left the House yesterday after that that inauspicious scene, mm. Peter, um, there are many things that have been impractical about this pandemic. And I, I don't think impractical is a genuine reason not to not to make this work. Mm. 
Yes, but that's that's the long and the short of it. That's just... the long and the short of it. But Catherine, you could read other things into that potentially. Well, <laughs> well, no. You know, when you know no. that it will make a difference to something very important. For example, a vote on an integrity commission yeah. uh, or a vote on whether the member for Pierce uh, should be referred to the Privileges Committee as as determined by the Speaker, then this makes a big difference. And the issue is we don't know how long this is going to go on. This could go on all the way through to the next election. So I think this is a real problem. And, and in practical... What, it's just like, sorry, can't do that, it's not practical, end of story or...? At the moment, end of story. I'm not that happy to make it the end of the story. Mm. Uh, gosh, you know, I mean, one of the things uh, that's been said is, oh, there's only four minutes in a division, that wouldn't be sufficient time for the crossbencher to decide how they were going to vote and, and indicate in a you know, safe and secure way that this could happen. Well, again, you know, like we've... <laughs> gee whiz, we've locked people down in the houses. You know, we've done all sorts of things. Could we not maybe just for the period of the pandemic even extend it from four minutes to five? Yes. You know, like, I mean, there are, of course there are things we could do if there was a will to do it. Uh, so, yeah, the crossbencher uh, are, are really worried about this. We had a brief conversation about climate change and the relationship with uh, the Integrity Commission. I just wanted to end uh, our catch-up just with one more question about climate change. Obviously, you're watching uh, the the government <laughs> pre-positioning ahead of Glasgow and uh, some of the debates that are sort of being framed uh, by regional representatives who are opposed to the transition. Uh, you obviously represent a regional community. You know, I don't think you've got coal mines, have you? No, no, we <laughs> no. don't. And, and that's actually no. important to no, say no, that. No, I wasn't being flippant. No, 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 no I think it's obvi- a really yes. fair point yes. to say I haven't. No. Yes, and and obviously people represent the dynamics of their regions. Mm. So I'm just sort of foregrounding that so that the yeah. question isn't clear. Yeah, so northeast Ryan. Victoria, that's right. Yes. Um, no, Alpine region, uh, Flat Plains, Murray River. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, no, no coal mines. No coal mines. But, uh, but I think you have quite a different view, obviously, about, mm. about the transition and the opportunities associated with it. Obviously, there are transition costs, but you have a different perspective, which is not really being referenced very much in the debate at the moment. No, it's not, Catherine. And um, I I put a question in the House this week, I think it was Monday actually, to the Deputy Prime Minister, um, as a rural and regional Australian, as as a representative of a rural and regional seat, um, would part of his negotiations include really important things like ensuring that uh, regional communities who are at risk of bushfire would have a community battery in Mm. every town, that there would be opportunities for rural and regional Australians to truly profit from the inevitable boom in renewable energy and that that all the profits from these large-scale renewables wouldn't all go offshore, that a significant proportion of that money would flow into regional towns, that there would be opportunities for young people in regional towns to train in areas such as wind turbine technicians as solar panel producers, that the fitters and turners of yesterday would become the fitters of turners in, in creating transformers uh, for, for renewable energy projects. I mean, in my town of Wodonga, there's a, a very large manufacturer who, who builds transformers and, you know, they're, they're producing all the transformers for the biggest battery in the Southern Hemisphere down in, in Geelong. So, you know, I know that there is enormous opportunity because the people of my electorate tell me so. What they're concerned about is that this will all happen around them 
to them, not with them, mm. uh, and that, you know, what kind of say are they getting? And, uh, you know, again, I would would say to anyone listening, if you look at where the renewable energy zones are in Australia, they are, they are actually in some coal mining areas. Mm. So there's a real opportunity there. I want to see those people getting those skills opportunities. I want to see the TAFE colleges uh, in those those zones being funded to, to run these new courses for the young people there. And I want to see any large corporation that's setting up in those towns to, to genuinely engage with the rural communities where they're setting these up and make sure that profits and benefits come to those towns. And I think that that's the kind of thing I hope to God uh, the National Party <laughs> are talking about right now well, with the Prime Minister. Well, this is sort of an interesting question, isn't it? And we're recording ahead of the the clarification of a list of extras that the National Party will seek in order to give in principle backing to a net zero commitment. So, But, Catherine, you know, what I'd have to say is, again, it just beggars belief that after eight years in government that the National Party had no plan of their own, that they are waiting uh, the government to present them with a plan. Um, and what is the plan, Helen? What is the plan? Yeah, you know, and, and it's well, it's just so disappointing. And 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 the regional Australians I represent again just scratch their head to say what you know what the heck here. There's so many things that we could be doing now. Again, if if the if the junior coalition partners are going into a negotiation with a shopping list of of stuff. Well, again, I think that's that's not a plan either. Mm. That's a checklist. Mm. And um, we could and should and must do a whole lot better than that. You sort of made the point uh, in passing, I think, but it's, a, it's an intriguing one. What would be the reaction of your community, for example, if by early next week, and we're aware of, you know, the sort of terms of the agreement, the terms of the agreement was basically a whole lot of drilling in behind traditional industries and not much focus on transition because we've seen it we've seen the language in particularly in the parliament this week that you know renewable energy doesn't generate many jobs. It's sort of, you know, it's just a person, a lawnmower and a sheep or, you know, it's like... It's like, patently wrong. Sure. But yes. No, no. But, mm. like, I'm just interested, right, given yeah. obviously, you know, Australia is highly regionalised and there are yeah. very different views about this issue in different parts of the country. Like, how will it go down at home <laughs> if the wish list is... I don't know, you know, a, 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 like a, a continuation of the rail line to Gladstone for more coal port exports or, you know, you know what I mean. How will that go down? I, like, I think it'll go either of two ways. It'll either be, well, I've, yeah, not surprised at all. That's exactly what I thought they'd do and it's blooming hopeless or there'll be complete and utter outrage by that. And and right now in my electorate at the, at the last election, the National Party secured 9.5% of the primary vote. Um and I think the southern southern states. I think uh, we we only have to look across the mountains from me at, at Gippsland and and Darren Chester's seat. Darren's been very clear that that his electorate uh, of, of a similar mind to to mine mm. around this. That this is actually an opportunity of a lifetime for regional Australia, if you get the levers right. And uh, you know, I'm I'm want to say that this you know this is the new gold rush. This is the new wool boom. Get the levers right. Make sure that the that our provincial towns and cities really benefit from this. That our coal mining communities are the ones at the at the front of the queue when it comes to new skills and training. We really could do this, and, and I'm I'm not naive. I know there is 
pain involved here. Of course there is, but um, that pain can be assuaged with good policy. Imagine that. Good policy. What a perfect note to end on. Sorry, we're not laughing. It really is the objective. Good policy remains. So, Helen, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it in the middle of a busy sitting week with a lot of moving parts. Uh, thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. Thank you to Karishma Luthria, who will no doubt cut it for us. I am actually out of the country next week. So I will attempt to uh, get a pod episode for next week. But if I skip a week, uh, you'll know I'm on the trail of the Prime Minister as he heads to Glasgow. (laughs) So anyway, thanks, Catherine. Have a bonny time. (laughs) Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.